Oh, it's an honor to be with you guys tonight. And uh, I think I can see you once I get used to the light. And this is a bright spotlights, but that's okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So how is everyone tonight? How are you guys doing? Good? Uh, anything exciting happen in your life? Anybody have something exciting to share today? What's that? School quarter ended. That's pretty cool. Yeah. As a, as a kid, I was always looking forward to summertime, get out of school and uh, have the whole summer to not think about school. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's good to be here. I want to just kind of introduce myself. But before we even start, let's just pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just come before you and we just pray right now that, uh, Lord, you would just prepare our hearts for what's to come. I pray that... Um, your Holy Spirit would just be welcome in this place and be free to move and work in our hearts to make um, the Bible come alive to us, to freshen our, uh, deepen our appreciation for the Lord Jesus and all that he accomplished for us on the cross. And Lord, just um, give us a better understanding of what you did 2,000 years ago when you were here on earth. Uh, in the mission that God the Father sent you to do. So bless your word, and we just give thanks. We just pray that this whole time would be honoring to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I keep thinking I won't know anybody here because, you know, um, back in uh, May 9th, 2012, we launched Thrive, and my wife and I kind of headed that up, and, and uh, Michael came along not too long after, and hung around for a little while and then disappeared and went off to school, but uh, he was a part of Thrive back then and, and uh, Dustin up in Kitsap and they were <coughs> small group leaders and are now doing the ministry. So about three years ago, four years ago, we kind of stepped back and have been watching them do it and God always has other things to do. So grateful for that. Uh, just to introduce myself, though, because there are most of you don't know who I am, um, I'll just put a picture of my wife and I, who couldn't be here uh, on there. That, that screen kind of makes me look way fatter than I actually am, no, um, or at least act that I used to be, but it distorts us a little bit. But that's my wife and I. We've been married 47 years this, this April. It'll be 47 years. And uh, just, just an awesome partner in ministry. Uh, couldn't have done it without her. Uh, with her, was we've planted churches together, started ministries together that are still going, traveled together. I've, I've ministered and preached throughout most of Canada and the United States. Um, preached in all the provinces of Canada except the Maritime provinces. And um, she was by my side or else home with the kids. And, and so it was just a, an amazing gift from God. Can't say enough about that girl there on the left. Um, yeah, 66 years old she is. She's not here, so I can share her age. Does she look 66 years old? You see, if you treat them right, take good care of them, they, don't, they get younger instead of older when they get up there. Okay, real quick, one more photo here. Move off of this one. That's kind of my family. I have four sons. There's a grandkids, uh, 16 grandkids, another one on the way. And the, the cool thing about it all is every one of my grandkids is learning about Jesus. So 
I'm, I'm thankful for that. Those are, those are my credentials there. I always tell people, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't export it. We always have experts who are a total failure in whatever they've done, but they're going to tell you how to do it. Um, but I would just say this is the grace of God seen in, in almost every one of those kids, as far as I know, have had a time in their life where they've opened their heart and life to Jesus. And um, my one son is a, is a pastor down in Mexico. Um, the big guy kind of next to my wife behind him is a football player at Washington State University. He's down at the Alamo Bowl. He's a cougar. We won't hold that against him. I've always been a Husky fan, but I've had to change my allegiance a little bit. Uh, let's go to the next photo real quick because we're going to introduce our subject. Um, there's a cross. Now, that's, that's my backyard. And uh, that's, we call that deer Bucky. And Bucky's a Christian deer. And so he likes to worship. So he comes up over the hill and he stops and looks at that cross. You guys don't believe me, do you? Uh, can we pull up that little video? Will it show it any better? Oh, here he comes. Look at he sees the cross. And let's see what he does. Oh, yeah, he's going to get focused. And he's going to just look up there and think about creation being redeemed. You know, Jesus didn't just die for people. The Bible says, he, by the grace of God, should taste death for everything. And that even now the whole creation groans, waiting for redemption. One day a lot of things are going to be made right, and even the animals have to suffer because of man's sin. Okay? So, but the reason I put that up there is that's a wooden cross. And I just like to kind of start off with this. Paul made these comments, he said uh, to the Galatians, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross uh, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Uh, another place he writes to the Corinthians and he says, the preaching of the cross is to them who perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God, right? So when Paul was saying that, was he talking about a wooden cross like I had up there? Or like what you see people wear as a symbol around their neck? Was he saying, God forbid that I should boast about anything except this Roman cross that was made out of wood that one time stood on a hill far away and it was rugged or whatever and I just want to tell you about that cross. I don't think Paul was caring about that one bit. What he, this is important, what he was focused on was not the instrument of which Jesus was crucified that was used by the Romans. What he was focused on when he talks about accepting the cross He's talking about what was accomplished and all that was accomplished at the cross. There's two things that we all have to get straight to become a Christian, all right? It doesn't matter whether you smoke or drink or wear funny clothes or jewelry or have tattoos. None of those outward things have anything to do with being a Christian. It doesn't matter... I mean, as far as your salvation is concerned, what kind of moral standards you have. Paul wrote that verse, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross, to the Galatians who were being deceived into thinking what they did or didn't do would make them a better Christian. 
People always want to focus on what we have to do. The Philippian jailer, when there's an earthquake and he wakes up and he thinks the prisoners have fled and he's ready to kill himself and it's dark and maybe he's just looking out the window of his house, I don't know, but Paul, by the Holy Spirit, deep down in the innermost part of the prison, in a dungeon, calls out through the darkness and says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. A word of God spoken in the power of the Spirit of God with just the right timing of God filtered out through the darkness to that jailer, and he, like, was so struck, he fall, runs, calls for a light, gets a lantern or a torch, goes down into that dungeon, through the halls and wherever he was, and finds Paul and Silas who were in the innermost part of the prison with their feet in the stocks, but everybody got loose because of the earthquake, and falls down in front of him and says, what do I have to do to be saved? Because we always want to do something. And so I like to say there's two religions in the world, doing and done. And that wooden cross that you saw in my backyard is a reminder to me every morning when I look out there what Jesus accomplished on that cross. Uh, not that one, but on one a long time ago. And it reminds me of the work of Christ because if you don't understand who Jesus was, the person of Christ, that he actually was the son of God and is the son of God, that he lived a sinless life, that he was born of a virgin, that he rose from the dead in, bo in, in a body and ascended back into heaven, if you don't understand that he is the son of God, part of the Trinity, according to the Bible, you're not saved. And if you don't understand that on that cross 2,000 years ago, what Jesus accomplished is the only thing that can save you, and for some reason you're trusting in something else like church membership or the fact that you come to Thrive or that you got a Bible on your lap, it's a good thing, a lot of good stuff, or that you're kind of cute and don't do any bad things, like you're kind of respectful to people around you. It's good to be those things, and we, we should let Jesus reflect out in our lives. But it's what was accomplished at that cross that matters. So in all eternity past, everything as far back as you could go before all of creation, all eternity looked forward to one historical event. And it was the cross. And all eternity looks back to what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. And it didn't matter whether it was Adam and, and Eve and they fell into sin and God had to walk over to an innocent animal and say, I'm going to have to kill you. Okay? And blood had to be shed. Right? And the innocent had to die for the guilty. And they were, God made a covering. It was a temporary covering. All those Old Testament sacrifices, Hebrews tells us, could never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, where? At the cross. Forever sat down. All the Old Testament priests were always standing. Jesus sat down. Why? Because his work was finished. Six things we're going to see in a moment that Jesus said on the cross. Or seven things. And the sixth thing was, it is finished. There's nothing you can add to that. Okay? It's what he did 
We, we had a part. This is our part. We did all the sinning. And he did all the saving. You had nothing to do with your salvation. I hate to inform you. Okay? There wasn't a thing you could do except accept by faith what God did for you through the work of Jesus on that cross. Does that make sense? So, um, the cross was the center of two eternities. And the Old Testament saints, I like to say, they got saved by credit, on credit. They looked forward to a payment that was going to be made. We look back to a payment that has been made. Okay? And through all eternity, we're never going to ever forget what Jesus did. In fact, our appreciation of the cross is pretty hindered right now. Paul says, now we, three, we look in a, um, see through a glass darkly. Okay? It's, it's kind of fuzzy. But one day it will be face to face. And so when you get to heaven in Revelation chapter 5, there's a scene in heaven where they, they ask the question, who's worthy to open the book and loose the seals of, on the scroll? And John's weeping because no one was found worthy. But then somebody, the angel says to him, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. Okay, we all like to think of Jesus now as a lion, right? Oh, he's risen from the dead. He's all powerful. Okay, so we focus on that sometimes. And so what happens? It says, John said, then I looked. And in the midst of it all, stood a lamb as it had been slain. It could be translated this way, a freshly slain lamb is kind of what John saw in his vision. And what I think about that is what Jesus accomplished on the cross is as fresh today in the eyes of God the Father and the eyes of all those that are in heaven as it was when it happened. Okay? And it's never going to get old because the only title we have to share in the glory of Christ is what was accomplished at the cross and the blood that Jesus shed for us. Amen? So a couple things. At the cross, we're going to see that that's where Jesus, where we see the measure of God's love. And we'll never be able to fathom it. As most of you know, the hymn writer wrote a hymn, The Love of God is Greater Far. You guys have heard that? But one verse of that, he says uh, something like this. He says, um, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the sky of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. So that's where we see God's love, because we didn't deserve it. Sin came into the world. Man chose to listen to Satan. Sin came into the world. We were separated from God. And you're never going to appreciate the cross until you understand the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. And that God in his righteousness has to punish sin. 
if someone broke into your house today and they, you know, killed your sister and your brother and, uh, you know, or they raped somebody that was especially dear to you or anybody and society just said, no, they just, just let them go free. You would say, there's no justice. And we talk a lot today about social justice. A just God can't wink or overlook sin. Sin has to be punished. Habakkuk says in chapter 1, God, you are of purer eyes than to behold or look upon evil, and you can't even look upon iniquity or sin. There you see the holiness of God, where the angels are in Isaiah 6 flying before the throne day and night, and you know each one of them's got six wings, and with two they cover their face, and with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly, and they fly before the throne day and night saying, holy, holy, holy. We don't even fathom that until you start to study the cross, and then you're going to see the value of Understanding that a holy God cannot overlook sin, had to punish sin, and justice and perfect righteousness is only administered by a holy God. Our nation was originally founded on a lot of biblical principles. And so they would say things like, and liberty and justice for all. But there's a lot of people crying out today, there's no justice. I want to tell you something. One day there's going to be perfect justice. It says in Acts, when Paul was preaching on Mars Hill, he says, you know, the times of this ignorance, God at one time overlooked. He winked at it. But now he's commanded all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained or chosen, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. So that in eternity past, According to Peter, we were chosen before the foundations of the world. There, Jesus was uh, a lamb without spot and without blemish, without any sin. But we, we were all sinners. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. Romans uh, 6, 33. The wages of sin is death. We had a death sentence on us. We had the judgment of a holy God going to deal with us. And this world, we don't like to think about this, is still going to come under the judgment of God. We don't like to talk about those things. But that's what the cross helps us understand. Otherwise, you just have a rabbit's foot God. Some people have that. God's my lucky charm. When I need him, he's there to help me. He makes my life better. I feel better when God's in my life. And it's about me, 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 and my feelings. I got news for you. It's not about you. Yeah, God cares about you. And he loves you, and he's interested, and even the hairs of our head are all numbered. But when it comes to redemption, and when it comes, we need to get God's thoughts about what happened so really quick as the hymn christmas carol says long lay the world in sin and error pining 
till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Remember that line? How many remember that? Okay. All right. That's where the world was. Till Jesus comes as a baby in a manger, walks through this world, lives a perfect life, heals the sick, raises the dead, opens the eyes of the blind, and then every step he took took him unflinchingly to the cross. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. How will I be, how will I be uh, distracted until it is accomplished? He set his face steadfastly or like a flint to go to Jerusalem knowing everything that would befall him there. And all those Old Testament things pointed to the Lamb. Remember, John the Baptist looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb which takes away the sin of the world. How could a Lamb take away the sin of the world? Jesus was the Lamb of God's providing. God said to Abraham, or the, Abraham said to the servant, or he said to his son, God himself will provide a Lamb. He was looking way prophetically into the future. And the one day came when Jesus came, and he goes to the cross. He goes, and he's falsely accused. There's not time to go into it all, but it's just, and he's taken, he goes up to Gethsemane where his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Why was he in such agony, and why is he praying, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because he was thinking about what it would be like for him, being God, being holy, to be made sin for us. Think of the person that you know that is the most fastidious about being clean all the time. And what would it be like if you took them by the heels and hung them over a septic tank with a thing off and said, you know, in about one minute, we're going to baptize you in this stuff. And how would they feel? They would be in agony and squirming. That's a tiny, tiny picture example of what Jesus was feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, and as it were, his sweat was like great drops of blood. And his disciples are sleeping. And then he finally says, let's get going. And up the hill come men with torches and sticks. And Jesus says, you know, I was daily with you in the temple. And he asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am and the force of his words caused him to go backwards and fall to the ground. And Peter whips out the sword and whacks off Malchus, the servant of the high priest's ear. And Jesus, I don't know if he stooped down and picked it up and stuck it back on or just healed a new one. But he healed him, it says. I mean, you would have thought that that would have been enough to stop these guys. No. Jesus says, this is your hour. And right now you look at a lot of wickedness and stuff going in the world. It's because it's man's hour. But there's a day coming when Jesus is going to set it straight and he is going to reign in righteousness as king of kings and lord of lords. And he's going to come out of heaven with a sword coming out of his mouth that he is going to smite the nations with. And he's going to rule them with a, with a scepter of righteousness. And God is going to see things set right and he's going to see his son vindicated because they led Jesus away and they took him to Pilate's judgment. Well, first, they had a kangaroo court trial among the chief priests and religious leaders all night long. And they're mocking him and asking him questions. They even put a blindfold on him. And then they beat him in the face and say, prophesy unto us who it is that just smote you, just hit you. He knew their names. But remember, Isaiah prophesied as a sheep before his shears would be silent. He would not open his mouth. 
silent before them as the Son of God, the holy, all-powerful Christ of God who raised dead people, who walked on water, who calmed storms, who has, whose very breath he held in his hand allows his creature with their God-given strength and their God-given breath and every beat of their heart a gift from God to take their strength and their animosity and take out their hatred against God's Son. Because John said he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. The rest of that verse says, but to as many, that's all of us, who received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So what happens? He's taken from Pilate's judgment hall, uh, or from the, the priest, the palace of the high priest, to Pilate's judgment hall, where again he's mocked and ridiculed, and then he's taken to Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod puts on him a very, a very fancy purple robe and sends him back to Pilate. And both of them said, we find no fault in this man. But the chief priests and the religious leaders, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, who do you want me to release unto you? We got a notable prisoner here, Barabbas. You want us to release him? Uh, and, or, you know, how, can we release Jesus? And they say, no, we release unto us Barabbas who was a, a murderer and an insurrectionist. And they choose a murderer other than the Son of God. Barabbas has been loose ever since. Okay? And the Son of God is bound and led away and carries his cross. And eventually they get Simon Cyrenian to carry it. And they take him and hammer Jesus to a cross. And they lift him up between heaven and earth. And God sees Two, two things there. You see the heart of man and the heart of God. You see man's nature mocking, ridiculing God. People do that today. And you see God's heart patiently waiting. I mean, <laughs> God could have just stepped in and wiped them all out at any moment. Even one of the criminals that hung on, there were two criminals on either side of Jesus had a sense of that. He says to one thief who's mocking Jesus, don't you fear God? Seeing that we're in the same, getting the same kind of condemnation and sentence of judgment, and we get, we're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he calls out to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The first three hours of time at the cross, Jesus was on that cross six hours before he died, is all about man's hatred of Jesus, where God stood by and let man say, ah, oh, if you're the Christ, save yourself and come down from the cross. Mock his son. And Jesus is not thinking about himself. He's only thinking about others. Even on the way to the cross, he says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep. He's thinking of them, not him. And, they, and then the, he gets there, and the first thing he says on the cross, seven things he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He puts them on the ground of a, a manslayer in the Old Testament if you s killed somebody ignorantly. They don't, want, they don't even know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Who's he thinking about? Others. He's thinking about you and me a way that we could be forgiven. You know what your biggest need is as a person? 
You say, oh, it's to be loved. No, your biggest need is to be forgiven. Because your sins are your biggest problem. Your biggest problem isn't that people don't think more highly of you than they do. Or that you're just not the center of attention and liked all the time. Your biggest problem is your sins. And your biggest need is forgiveness. And then the next thing Jesus says, looks over and he sees his mother and he sees his disciple John and he says, woman, behold your son. And son, behold your mother. And that hour, John now takes Jesus' mother into his care. He's thinking about his mother. What would you be thinking about if you're hanging there beaten and whipped with a crown of thorns jammed into your head? They put those thorns on them that speak of the curse of man's sin. And they just, it says in the Bible, if you read all the Gospels, they just kept beating those thorns into his head. And these are pretty big thorns that are growing over there. The thorns that came from the curse of man's sin put on Jesus. He takes our curse. He takes our punishment. And then the thief, he's thinking of that guy. Today you will be with me in paradise, he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. First three hours, he's only thinking about others. And all a man's thinking about is how can we heap shame and reproach and hatred toward God's son? Here's your son, God. If you, just take him back. We'll put him on this cross. Here he is. We're going to lift him up from between heaven and earth as a spectacle to men and angels. And all of heaven looks down. And the angels look down. And then what? The whole scene is blotted out in darkness. And no one can see now what's about to happen. And I want to tell you what. If Jesus had stopped right there, you and I would not be saved. Because we're not saved from the thorns, we're not saved from the nails, we're not saved from the spit, the beating, the scourging, the mocking, would bring us no salvation. Those are referred to by theologians as the non-atoning sufferings of Jesus. But during those hours of darkness, God, a holy God, blots out the whole scene and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalms 22. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I might never be forsaken. Because a holy God had to turn his face away because he can't look on evil and say, he turned his face away while the judgment of our sins were everything I ever did was placed on Jesus. Because the Bible says, he whose own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. It says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Peter says, uh, he died the innocent for the guilty. He died the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. And there, between heaven and earth, in those hours of darkness, every lie I ever told, every bad thing I ever did, was placed on the sinless Son of God and is a sacrifice for me. Instead of God pulling out the sword of his judgment in those first three hours, God did something that his, the atmosphere of God is not comfortable with normally. 
The Bible says judgment is his strange work. He just he finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, it says. So, but the stroke, the sword of God's judgment, his wrath comes down on his son in Isaiah or in, in Zechariah 13. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man who is my fellow. And stroke upon stroke of the wrath of a holy God against sin. And I can't shout it long enough to get it into our heads what happened on that cross. A holy God who created all things, who loved us with an infinite love, punishes his own sinless son in our place to demonstrate his love for us. Romans 5, 8, and I'm sorry for shouting at you, okay? God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were without strength, in just the nick of time, Christ died, Romans 5, for the ungodly. That was you. That was me. He took my place. He bore my judgment. He took every bit of my sin and my guilt, and he exhausted the wrath of a holy God in my place so that I could have eternal life and a home in heaven by accepting his finished work on my behalf. The fifth thing he says is, I thirst. The sixth thing he says, it is finished, finished, done. And the last thing is, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And after he said that, he dismissed his spirit to God, it says he bowed his head. He cried with a loud voice. A person who's struggling and dying doesn't cry with a loud voice. They can barely groan. But I want to tell you something. It wasn't the nails or the scourging or the cross that killed Jesus. He bore our sins and he finished in full feeling all of it. And with a loud voice, he says, finished. Because he says, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again, this commandment of I received of my Father. And so in all of his strength, in all of his feeling, through the whole time, he exhausts the wrath of a holy God, refuses the drug, uh, alcoholic beverage that would have maybe dulled the pain, and takes it all in your place and mine. And after he dismisses his spirit back to God and lays down his life, because he had that power, destroyed this temple, and in three days he said, I'll, I'll raise it again, speaking of the temple of his body. One of the soldiers comes along and says, oh, tomorrow's the Sabbath day, we better hurry up and hasten their death. And so they break the legs of the two thieves that were on either side of Jesus. They take their big Roman spear handles, the way they did this, and just smashed the legs because a, a person being crucified would push up to breathe. And then they would be kind of like suffocating almost and push up again. But when they came to Jesus, to their astonishment, he was dead already. But one of the soldiers, John's gospel records, took a spear. And he shoved it into the side of the dead Christ. And the Bible says, forthwith flowed out 
blood and water. Leviticus tells us it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Peter says, we're not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot that was ordained before the foundations of the world in an eternity past in those deep councils of the Trinity. It was already planned that someone would have to come and rescue us of our sin. And Jesus, so to speak, like Isaiah of old said, here am I, send me. And he steps out of the palaces of heaven into a world of woe, as the old hymn says, in your place and mine. And he's taken down. God never allowed wicked hands to ever touch his son again after he's finished this work. Loving hands take him down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus come with a hundred pounds of spices. They wrap the body and carry it away. They defile themselves so they can't even celebrate the feast and the rest of the Passover celebration. Why? Because they recognize that Jesus was a true Passover lamb. There's so much more we could say about this. But I want to say that there were three crosses there, and they all represent one of us. There was the cross of rebellion. The thief, it says, I like the King James, it says, about the mocking. He cast the same in his teeth. The cross of rebellion. And then in the middle cross, there was a cross of redemption. Jesus accomplishing the redemption that only God manifest in the flesh could accomplish for you and for me. And then there's the other cross, the thief who recognized that this was more, this was God. And he says, Lord, he owned Jesus as Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognized Jesus had a coming kingdom. And Jesus says, today, I'll give you something better than that. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Today is the best time with me, that best person in paradise. That's the best place. Okay. And so each one of us are, we look, we're either still in rebellion to God or we recognize the redemption that was accomplished and we say, God, here I am. Take me, I'm a sinner. I deserve your wrath. I deserve your judgment. You are a holy, righteous God. And if you were righteous and if you were holy, you would throw me eternally into a hell if I understood how bad of a sinner I really am. Things you don't hear in church, but the Bible's full of it, okay? I don't mean the Bible's full of it in the sense of it being bad. I mean the Bible's full of things about judgment and hell that nobody wants to talk about because of this fluffy Christianity that we hear today. Years ago, men of God would get up and whole towns would get saved when they would preach the truth of the Bible instead of some, you know, if you just believe in Jesus, your smile will be brighter, your steps will be lighter, and your teeth will be whiter. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we've all sinned. We need a savior. Jesus took my place. God's inviting me to come and believe it and receive it. I don't understand it. The Holy Spirit works in my life, causes me to appreciate what Jesus did. I recognize my sin. I recognize his holiness and his righteousness. And I say, this is the only refuge that I have. The words of an old hymn that I sometimes quote to Michael, and he's probably quoted it to you here but these words and I'm going to finish with it the perfect righteousness of God is witnessed in the Savior's blood these are things that people sang a hundred years ago in church believe it or not 
Tis in the cross of Christ we trace his righteousness yet wondrous grace. I love this verse. God could not pass the sinner by. His sin demands that he must die. But in the cross of Christ we see how God can save yet righteous be. The judgment falls on Jesus, fell on Jesus' head. Twas in his blood sin's debt was paid. Stern justice can demand no more, and mercy can dispense her store. The sinner who believes is free can say the Savior died for me, can point to the atoning blood and say, this made my peace with God. Not something you do or don't do. It's what Jesus did. And when you receive it by faith, your doing will change. But your doing isn't going to do anything to earn favor with God. It's because he comes in and changes. Some little girl, you know, she went to Sunday school and it was not very theologically correct necessarily. But she heard something about inviting Jesus into your heart. And she says, comes home and she says, Mom, if you invite Jesus into your heart, does he stick out? She's trying to picture Jesus, you know, in her heart. And that's pretty profound stuff. If you really have Christ in your life, he ought to stick out. People ought to look at you and see something different. And if they don't, you might be really wondering whether you have the real thing or not. Okay. But tonight, you can make sure. You say, God, I, I, I want to know, you know, John's gospel, I'm closing with this, says, I write these things. There's a whole bunch of stuff I could write. And if I wrote down all the things that Jesus did, the world itself would hardly contain the books. I mean, he's a figure of speech, but it's just too much. But he says, these things I write so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you would have life through his name. A number of years later, John's writing an epistle to a church. And he says, you know, if you're really saved... You'll actually love your brother. And if you hate your brother, you're probably not saved. And, and if you, you're saved, you'll walk in the light. But if you're really not saved, you walk in darkness. And he, he just kind of gives a black and white epistle. And when he's all done with it, he says, gives the whole litmus test of the reality of Christ in your life. Then he says, these things I write so that you might, the first time, the gospel is that you might believe. He says, I write these things so that you might know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you to think so, hope so, maybe so. He wants us to know in such a way that it transforms us. When I look at all the mercies of God, I say, like Paul writes, in, after he spent eight chapters in Romans giving all the mercies of God and three more about God's plan to save Jews and Gentiles, and then he says, I beseech you, I urge you, very strong language in the Greek, I plead with you, I like beg you, I urge you, in view of these amazing mercies, in view of the cross, in view of all that God's done for you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service or only intelligent response or your spiritual act of worship so that you might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable. Would you like something good and perfect and acceptable in your life? 
will of God. The center of God's will is something that's really good, it's perfect, and it's acceptable. In view of God's mercies, like the old hymn writer of old, he talking about uh, when I survey the wondrous cross, the last, uh, he says, on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. There from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Then he says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love that transcends my highest powers demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father, bless your word tonight. Thank you that we can take a few minutes and reflect on the cross. I hope that some of what we've shared has just given a glimpse into what happened in that most important event in history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that our salvation has been taken care of by you. All we need to do is believe it, receive it, as your word says, to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Lord, transform us. May these truths motivate us to live for you for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.